Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isgert, joined by Steve Hayes. And today we are in Dallas, Texas, talking to former President George W. Bush about his new book, Out of Many, One, Portraits of America's Immigrants. We're going to talk about the book and art and immigration and the future of the Republican Party and everything in between. And what a treat to talk to my former boss. Let's dive right in. Mr. President, this book is, it's incredible. It's an incredible read, but I want to start with the visuals. It's a book of your paintings. I want to talk about color. Yeah. Uh, So what stood out to me is that, you know, as president, you're a pretty buttoned up guy, you know, (laughs) plain suits, dark blues, blacks, et cetera. And yet your paintings, I'm looking at Sumera Hawk and, you know, the background is this bright red. Her hair has purples and greens and reds in it. And as you describe it, you say, I painted Sumera. I tried to capture her pride in her sons, her joy in her work, and her gratitude for our country. How do you think about color when you're talking, when you're trying to tell someone's story through pictures? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I didn't think much about color when I was first painting. I was thinking about uh, painting exactly what I saw. In other words, I, I would call myself a Polaroid painter. I realize that not that's not necessarily art. That is just reproduction. And uh, one of my instructors, Big Jim Woodson, fine guy, taught at TCU for a long time, said, what do you want to learn? Kind of a gruff old guy. And I said, uh, color. And he said, throw away all your paints. I had bought every color in them, you can imagine, you know. And I said, uh, okay. And he said, I want you to uh, try using two yellows, two reds, phthalo blue, and a white, and that's all. And from that point forward, I limited my palette, and I learned to mix paint as a result. And so every color in that book is based upon the primary colors. And as a result, it gives you a confidence in color, and it turns out I love color. Uh, and uh, and so it, 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 some of it just came naturally, you know. I'm thinking about Samara. I know her story. She's been abused as a uh, as a wife, mistreated, loves her sons a lot, and uh, is a uh, big time contributor to women's health in D.C. And so it was, a, it was not so much thinking about the color, but thinking about how to make her vibrant. And you know, the good things about oil is you put them on and scrape them off. And so a lot of these portraits evolve. And, uh, but thank you for talking about that. It's, uh, uh, it was very important for me to, uh, to get particularly the faces of women right. So they would look at their portrait and not be disgusted by how I painted them. <laughs> and, um, I, I learned that lesson when I tried to paint Laura one time. I heard she didn't love it. Uh, that's a mild uh, statement. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I couldn't, I mean, she, I, what's wrong with it? Well, I'm anguished. Okay, well, I'm going to make you less anguished. What's wrong with that now? And anyway, I finally just gave up. And uh, It's for the best. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how long have you been interested in, in painting? How long have you been, been doing Here's this? the thing. Um, I came back from the presidency uh, uncertain as what I was going to do. One thing I was certain of is I was not going to weigh in on criticizing my successors. And the reason I felt that way 
uh, is that the the country uh, benefits from the institutional stability of the presidency itself, not necessarily the occupant of the office, but the presidency, and it weakens the presidency to be yet another, you know, talking head, you know, another political voice. Secondly, I didn't like it when former presidents criticized me, and therefore I wasn't going to do it. I mean, to be clear, you didn't like it when I criticized you either, so. But you know what? You weren't a president and never will be, so therefore I was very, <laughs> very forgiving. I'd never want to be. I'd never want to be. <laughs> you know, I, the truth of the matter is I didn't mind uh, criticism because I think it's uh, one of the key components of our, our democracy, and it's how the powerful are held to account. And I recognized early on that power is very corrupting. And all of a sudden you think, well, I'm powerful, therefore I'm all-knowing. Or I'm powerful, I can do what I want to do. Or I'm powerful, my friends can benefit. And we need people to hold the powerful to account. It's what happens to be missing in Russia, for example, right now. Uh, but I, uh, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I wrote these books about the presidency and my dad, and yet it wasn't enough. And uh, about eight years ago, by chance, I read an essay by Winston Churchill, Painting is a Pastime, and I strongly recommend it. Mm. First of all, he's an awesome guy. He's a great leader and a really good writer. And I turned to Laura and said, you know, I'm going to paint. And it was a shocking statement because I was agnostic at best on art. Mm. I mean, like, we live in a great art collection in the White House. I didn't even pay attention to it. And so I started painting. And, uh, and I've been painting ever since. Uh, my, my first wonderful painting was a cube. And uh, and Gail was my instructor, and uh, and I, I I told I convinced her I was serious, which made her serious. She got me to take the MoMA course online. Mm. I have been studying other artists now a lot. I still study other artists to try to get a sense for how they achieved good color, for example, or emotion. And uh, and it's been one of the greatest learning experiences of my life. So this wasn't something that you did a lot as a kid no. and you painted and no, no. picked it up again. No, I was a, uh, no, I was a little league player in Midland, Texas. <laughs> but no, I, you know, no, we didn't have a lot of art discussions around our house. And, uh, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about this on the subject and I'm, I, I, I use it as an interesting lesson in life that you're never too old to learn something. I mean, people get really occupied with what they're doing. That's fine. But at some point in time, you know, there's going to be a, ch- a learning challenge. And, you know, my advice to people who just retired is paint. In each story that you're telling through these pictures, and by the way, you pick up this book and you think it's just a, you know, going to be a pretty normal coffee table book. It's really yeah. about the pictures. You can sort of flip through what's being written. But no, the stories I, <laughs> at my dinner table, my parents were visiting when I read this book and I I mean, like it was the 19th century or something, read to them from the book so that it could be our dinner conversation. The stories are so wonderful well, that you include. You. Thank you. Um, I've noticed two things that were in every single story, and it couldn't be an accident. Family, you always emphasize people's yeah. families. And second, the social capital surrounding them when they got yeah. to this country. Yeah. And I wonder whether, as so many people talk about social capital failing in this country, declining in this country, sort of the Robert Putnam bowling alone theory. Um, Do you emphasize that because you're concerned about the future of social capital in this country or because you think it's more vibrant than we give it credit for? I think it's more vibrant than we give it credit for. There are 
millions of acts of compassion that take place on a daily basis in America that mo- most people don't know about. It's really one of the unique aspects of our country. Uh, you know, m- many societies have forfeited compassion to government, but government's not compassionate. Compassion exists because people's hearts are pure, more pure, because they do want to love somebody. And that, uh, also one of the themes in this story is religion. Uh uh, Catholic Charities, for example, is part of the compassionate agenda. But uh, the two North Korean escapees found solace as a result of missionaries hiding in China, waiting to envelop uh, a stranger in love. And, uh, y- you know, my, my whole point on all this immigration debate and stuff is I think if we valued life as precious and every life matters, that we're all God's children that all of a sudden the tone of the debate might be a little better. And, uh, uh, and no, I think, I think compassion is very strong in America. As a matter of fact, the more dysfunctional government looks, the more compassionate people are because it is a, an efficient way of uh, dealing in society. Let's move to immigration because that's obviously uh, the theme of this book. You have an essay by Yuval Levin, who you paint yeah, and yeah. speak kindly of. And Yuval quotes... This Abraham Lincoln quote that is just wonderful, and I want to read it so that everyone knows it. Um, He's talking about people who come to this country and what the Declaration of Independence means to them. But when they look through that old Declaration of Independence, they find that those old men say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And then they feel that moral sentiment taught in that day evidences their relationship to those men, that it is the father of all moral principles in them, and that they have a right to claim it as though they were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote that declaration. And so they are. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we do enough for immigrants coming to this country or even our own citizens to teach that sentiment? I think we teach it pretty well to immigrants because they it, it, they may not be able to cite it, but they feel it. And but many of our citizens take the beauty of that sentiment for granted. And uh, so one reason why I wanted to people to focus on the individual stories, uh, because to a person, they're incredibly appreciative of what America stands for. And. You know, they don't need a lecture on freedom to feel what a free society means. And uh, and so, yeah, I, no, I, I don't worry about immigrants. They may not be able to quote it. Hell, I couldn't quote it. And, but uh, I read it, to be yeah, clear. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> uh, all uh, a smart guy, and I put him in there for a couple of reasons. One, uh, uh, I know him and admire him, but also because immigrants bring incredible brain power to our country. And he's a really uh, capable man who can articulate the beauties of American experience in ways that, you know, people born here can't. Yeah, including people who think about it and write about it for a living like me. Yeah. I, I can't do it. Yeah, you've I all suggest that. you're not trying. Anyway. Right. Um, so uh, one of the things that struck me as I, as I read this, my brother, Andy, my younger brother, worked for Catholic Charities in yeah. Washington, uh-huh. D.C. with refugees and, and migrants. And, and, he would come home and, you know, we'd have a beer after work and he would tell these stories. And what struck me was the through line here about how much they appreciated what America provides, what America offers. Yeah. And, you know, 
these stories, one after another after another, are so incredible. Some of the some of the details of the story, the, the first one, the, the Joseph Kim yeah, yeah. story, <laughs> the first Bible verse yeah. he sees yeah. after coming out of North Korea where it's all black, yeah. and, and then he sees this. Um, how, talking about um, how immigrants appreciate America and how sometimes those of us who were born here take it for granted, are there things that, that others can do? I mean, I think part of why you did this was to sort of shine a light on right. how special this is. Yeah. What else should be done to make people appreciate what we've got? Well, you know, it's a uh, there needs to be leadership that inspires uh, and reminds people of the beauty of America, not the ugliness. Right now, we're just overwhelmed with a lot of friction, tension. But, you know, it's an interesting question that was asked about, do I think that America is a compassionate country? And I, I'm abs- I, I know it is. And uh and one of the stories, one of the reasons I talk about these stories uh, is because almost to a person, they're willing to put something back in our society. In other words, the compassion they received as a catalyst to the, then in turn give back. And it's that cycle of, you know, yeah. receiving and then giving and receiving and giving that had made us very unique. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I hope this book will help set a different tone for the immigration debate, I fully understand the populist angst that comes uh, with the immigration debate. Uh, You know, I'll never forget a long time ago, we were campaigning in a a town in Iowa and one of the Latino kids that was in my campaign is 2000 got profiled. And, you know, uh, it really irritated me, frankly. And, you know, I was told by one of the city fathers that, well, we just don't see many of them around here. And it became very apparent that immigration uh, was going to create some cultural tensions uh, as those meatpacking plants up there in Iowa needed workers and, you know, the Swedes weren't all that anxious to do it, uh, that in comes people who are starving to do the work and hard work, hard workers. And all of a sudden those communities begin to change and the culture, the friction. And, you know, I didn't really realize that. I mean, after all, I grew up in Texas where... We were Mexico. And, uh, uh, Can and- you understand where those, this is actually one of the, the main questions I wanted to ask you. Can you understand those sentiments though? I mean, I think sure. this, a, a lot of it, I think we are in one of these spasms of fear yeah, and, yeah, and no ugly, question. ugly moment to be sure. But some of that, I would say, take that example, what, what that gentleman told you, you grew up and you had a very particular experience with Immigrants, sure, right? Starting with with Paula, Paula, Paula. Um, and then f- from there you saw immigrants in a very positive light. Absolutely, as and as governor of Texas, can you understand with people who haven't had that experience sure. why they come to a different Absolutely. conclusion? Or they see that this is a threat. This might this person might take my job. Yeah, and one reason I can see it is because I studied history, and I you know I remember the Know Nothing Party, fiercely anti-immigrant. I remember the immigration policy of the 20s, too many Jews and Italians. Therefore, we have zero immigrants, except for, of course, on the Texas border, where immigrants were always coming in to help, you know, the cattle raisers and the farmers. But, uh, yeah, I fully understand it. And I don't, I don't cast dispersion. Uh, but I also uh, uh, know that without those immigrants, the economies of those uh, areas would be, you know, paltry. Right. And, uh, and so, therefore, the, the, 
purpose of the book and the purpose of, I think, responsible uh, policymakers is to say, look, we fully understand where you're coming from. I mean, English is a second language is all of a sudden being introduced into classrooms for the first time in some school districts or hospitals, you know, with young, uh, you know, immigrant moms in filling emergency rooms. And uh, we know that we understand your angst. Uh, on the other hand, I hope you take time to uh, learn about uh, the, 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 the motivations and the positive contributions these citizens can make. Sure, it's a, it's a natural phenomenon, and it's not a one-time uh, experience in our country. We, we've, been, we've been having these spasms of, of anxiety for a long period of time. On the other hand, a confident nation says, e pluribus unum. For the unsophisticated, Steve, that means out of many one. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, that. Happy to, <laughs> happy to teach you a little Latin. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, and sometimes we lose our confidence. You have said that not passing immigration reform was one of the biggest regrets, if not the biggest regret of your presidency. Yeah. Do you think the Republican Party bears the majority of the blame for that? And has the Republican Party stoked some of that fear for political gain? No, I don't think so. I think plenty of Republicans know that immigration needs to be reformed. Uh, in 2006, I think the case, uh, the, the if, if I could lay blame, it'd be to the Democratic leadership of the Senate for refusing to allow a bill to go forward without uh, the amendment process. Now, this is very arcane, but Senator, we had a good bill going, and senators needed to be able to try to amend the bill in order to go back to their constituents and say, I tried to make it better, but unfortunately, they didn't vote for it. On the other hand, the good outweighs the bad. And so uh, we got to, yeah, no, I don't blame Republicans for that. Uh, it would have been a hard fight in the House in 2006, but I'm confident we could have gotten a bipartisan vote on it. Now, and the reason I say it's a regret, because it's my fault. I tried to reform Social Security before reforming immigration. And, you know, and I was warned. I'll never forget a bunch of Republicans came to see me and said, we hear you're putting Social Security reform in your State of the Union. It's 2005. And I said, yeah, I am. I campaigned on it. I mean, I was quite explicit about that and immigration reform. And uh, they said, well, uh, we don't think you should do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we're not going to support it. I said, you got to be kidding me. I'm Republican standard bearer. I just won. I said, why aren't you going to report it? He said, we'll lose seats. And I said... We'll lose seats in the next midterm if we don't do big things. And but but I got stubborn and tried to run with Social Security. It fizzled out. Uh, and but I I, I, be, I do believe if I'd have surprised everybody and gone with immigration first, we might have uh, got ahead of the populist uprising on the issue. And uh, I'm curious about your reactions to President Biden's speech last night. But he talked about immigration and he talked about the need to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah. But he also said. And if you don't want to do it comprehensively, let's just do some of these piecemeal. He mentioned dreamers and farm workers. Uh, do you think piecemeal is now the way to go I after a so. couple decades of failed comprehensive yeah, yeah, efforts? Yeah, I think, it, I think, I, I think that uh, uh, dreamers, most Americans understand you're not going to take a kid that uh, came over here as a young, young person and send them back to nowhere. I mean, there's no place to go. And uh, I put a dreamer in the book. Uh, just want to make the case that a lot of these dreamers are making significant contributions. Carlos is an engineer, doing extremely well in San Antonio. Uh, I think piecemeal probably makes sense. And I think the president, uh, if I could be so bold, call in Republicans who are like-minded 
and say, let's see if we can't get something done. Uh, you know, border security is always a touchstone issue on this. And uh, Americans have got to be assured that the government's doing everything they can to enforce the border. But there ought to be a recognition that without some reforms, uh, that, no, let me phrase it, reforming will make it easier to enforce the border. So, for example, if somebody, if there's work to be done and somebody's got a, a work visa that enables them to come legally, they're not going to have to sneak across the border, which means Border Patrol will be more likely to do their job. Right now, the asylum system's totally broken. I mean, it's overwhelmed. And we got Border Patrol agents who are not enforcing the law like they're trained to do, kind of driving, you know, kids around to different sites or guarding places in West Texas. And, uh, uh, and so, but I do, and so comprehensive may be too big a reach right now. And uh, so if they, like if they can get DACA done and with some border enhancement, you know, plans to give the, give Republicans comfort in voting for the bill, then all of a sudden there's confidence to be gained. And then they can deal with the work or they can deal with the undocumented. But, yeah, I, I, that may be a better approach. Is the is is what we're seeing along the border right now? It was pretty predictable. People predicted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biden, top Biden advisors were asked questions about it before he was sworn in. Does he bear responsibility for what we're seeing, and does it make it harder because everybody goes back to their corners and says, "Look, what's happening?" No, what's I agree happening? with that. I think it makes it harder to pin blame on anybody. You know, Republicans hate this, and you know. Administration doesn't like that. I, I agree with that, Steve. I think finger pointing makes it hard to get something done. Uh, it, it's still a polarized electorate, and which makes it harder to get policy done. Uh, I, I think the change of administrations enabled the coyotes and the propagandists and the exploiters to say, "All right, now we can get you in." Yeah. And these people are so desperate, and they're so scared for their lives. They pay enormous sums of money and oftentimes are, uh, you know, fooled. And they can't get them in. And as a result of people flooding to the border, the whole thing is like, you know, if you were to go down and ask Catholic Charities, how are you doing? They're going to say we're overwhelmed, totally overwhelmed. And yet they're on the front line of, of trying to help. And uh, it's a... Uh, I, I, I don't know all the details about all this, but I noticed they're now beginning to work better with the Mexicans, and they're beginning to work with the uh, border between Mexico and Guatemala, and uh, and hopefully that'll start. And, and I, I'm pretty confident the word's now getting out that the coyotes are are, are lying to you, and uh, uh, but whether or not the desperation over and hope overwhelms reality, I don't know. But it's it's hard right now, and it scares scares a lot of Americans. Nobody wants, well, I shouldn't say that. Rational people should not be arguing for open border. You can't be a nation of law and have an open border. But you can recognize that the border can be less open by reform. But as we continue to have such a flood of unaccompanied minors, including parents who are bringing their children to the border and then staying on the Mexican side of the border to let their children cross, doesn't that undermine the case for... DACA and the Dreamers as well, if we're just then incentivizing unaccompanied children to come? I don't or- think so. I think that uh, it's like saying somebody who's been here for t- 10 years and has paid their taxes and is a good American shouldn't be given the opportunity to come out of the shadows. Uh, you know, I-, I think one could argue any reform provides further incentive. Uh, but the question is, is reform going to make 
our border policy more compassionate and more enforceable. And I happen to think it would. But yeah, no, it's, it's, look, they're all legitimate arguments. But what's the alternative? I mean, uh, just let let these kids who've been here for a long time and are contributing fear being uh, kicked out to nowhere. I, I don't think that makes sense. And I think most Americans agree with that. You know, uh, you'll be happy to hear I'm not paying attention to the polls much these days. <laughs> <laughs> Did <Is> you it, <laughs> ever? <Is> no, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> A little rough exit, if you remember. <laughs> how uh, how much of the, the the problem on immigration specifically, in terms of getting to a solution, is because it's such a potent issue politically for both for both I think sides? A lot. I think a lot. And so they'd rather have the issue than solve the problem. I think you're right, Steve. And, and you know, it, no question. Yeah. I and mean, it's like a lot of issues. You know, right. Social Security. Social Security should have been fixed. I mean, it's one of the great hoaxes to tell young Americans, please put money in the system; it'll be fine. And you know, and guys my age are beneficiaries, but the people putting money in are likely not to see a dime or see some, but have, or put more money in. But it's a potent political issue. And I knew it was. And uh, hence, members of my own party said, we're not with you. And I said, why? Because we'll lose seats. I mean, that's, that's that the crux the, of the matter. I want to I get back to, I have a question about one of the folks you profiled in the in the book, but I want to ask follow up on that specifically. Listening to, to President Biden's speech last night, um, he was, shall we say, aggressive or ambitious with his spending proposals. Sure. Um, and during your eight years in office, we accumulated an additional $3.3 trillion in, in debt, roughly. And you got a lot of grief for that, even, even though, I mean, from people like me. Yeah, well, you probably didn't look at the debt to GDP ratios compared to previous presidents, but that's okay. I you're, did. You were I a little narrow minded in those did. days. I did look at it and I still <laughs> criticize. No, but I mean, look, $3.3 trillion was a lot. I mean, I think I, I thought it was wise and smart and necessary to try to reform social security. Yeah. I'm glad Republicans in Congress in 2011 to 16 tried to reform Medicare and other entitlements. Absolutely. We're not going to solve the problem unless, unless we as a country right. address those things. But if you look at what what President Biden proposed last night, you know we're talking about six trillion dollars in in new spending that yeah. he's proposed in his first one hundred days. Yeah, I mean we passed practically fainted at the three point three trillion. Yeah, uh, is this what what needs to happen? Well, and so, where are Republicans on this? Yeah, well, uh, so you know there's a school of thought that says that doesn't matter. Well, your vice president at one point said deficits don't matter. Yeah, well, and money supply doesn't matter. And, uh, I, I, you know, and it puzzles me to uh, think about uh, the lack of regard for inflation. And, you know, I, I remember 1978 and 79, double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment, double-digit interest rates. Uh and so, you know, there's an economic theory out there that I, I don't understand. Uh, uh, and I guess it's one of the blessings of being 74 years old that, you know, maybe the uh, chickens won't come home to roost until I'm long gone. But it's uh, they've got to come home to roost. you got all this money floating around uh, and debt. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's going to be really problematic. It's uh, we were very conscious, by the way, of in spite of that loaded question of uh, of spending money. The debt to GDP was 
I think the lowest uh, since Reagan, if I'm not mistaken, and the deficit GDP was uh, lower than everybody's but Bill Clinton's. Yeah. And I was conscious of it and was, uh, uh, you know, I'm a supply sider and felt like cutting taxes would enhance economic growth. We had a few uh, interruptions, such as a huge financial meltdown. But, you know, that school of thought seems to be dissipating and uh, uh, now. And I don't see how you can tax your way to prosperity. And, it's, you know, we'll see. We'll see whether or not his full package spend, gets passed. Yeah. yeah. Or spend. Yeah, well, that's spend your way to prosperity and raise taxes to achieve the spending. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10000 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. I think there's a lot of narratives that can be told around the 2016 Republican primary and the shifts that the Republican Party has undergone since then. But one of those narratives must be around immigration, that in fact, it was the rejection of the Gang of Eight, the comprehensive immigration reform from the moderates within the Republican Party. How does the 2016 election and Republican voters fit into this book's central thesis, which is, again, in at least one narrative of the 2016 election, exactly what they rejected? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I didn't think about that. Uh, You you know, uh, my candidate uh, didn't win. That would be Brother Jeb, who had a comprehensive <laughs> plan. That. He had a comprehensive plan. And, uh, you know, I didn't think about that from, a uh, you know, helping the party perspective so much, uh, although I do. But, and first of all, it's not a moderate issue. I, I happen to believe it's a conservative issue. And uh, because inherent in, uh, in treating each individual decently is the notion that government uh, doesn't love. And it requires loving people to help people realize their potential. Uh, but, you know, I, it, you know, Steve's question was, is it too polarized to be a winning issue for anybody? And he, he may be right. Uh, I hope not. And part of the purpose is to try to just to bring a different light. I mean, I was discouraged when I saw some of the language associated with immigrants and wanted to you know, present a different side. And some of the stories in here are just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, Jean Larkin, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, she sees her dad hatched to death by Hutus. Her mother dies. She's abused as a young teenager by Hutus. She gets a foster father who brings her here, his family with her here at the States. He abuses her. And yet to hear her talk about forgiveness is unbelievably inspiring. I mean, and it's not fake forgiveness. It is a genuine uh, love for mankind. And uh, my point is that's the kind of person that'll make our society better. Yeah, sort of amazing she even survived reading yeah. the details of what Same she... Same with uh, Gilbert. 
Yeah. Yes. From the Burundi. story in the gym. They burned the gym yeah. with him in it. Yeah. And uh, his classmates because mm-hmm. they were tootsies. Just. And, uh, you know, it's politics at its worst. Yeah. And when we talk about, when we look back at that genocide, it feels very relevant today as we look at the Uyghurs. Um, yeah. It's sad. And that's the beauty of America. Take people like Gilbert, and he's just as equally American as you and I. Can I ask about Salim Asrawi? Yeah. Yes, you can. So my first question about him is, is there a little bit of you <laughs> no, in, somebody, this, in this picture? Because some, somebody accused me of that, and I said, look, Salim's a hell of a lot uglier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> he was standing there, by the way. He's a cool guy. He's a he's, he employs about I think he told me three thousand people now. Yeah, and came with nothing. And he lives here in Dallas. Got triplets and twins. <laughs> so he escaped Beirut. Busy. The yeah. The I mean, well, this is what was so interesting to me. I mean, we've we've spent some time talking about the nativism and and sort of fear and hostility towards immigrants that we've seen from the right. There's a different phenomenon, I think, happening on the left sometimes, and it's, it's, it involves this whole discussion of cultural appropriation. Here's a guy who comes from Lebanon. He starts something called Texas Day Brazil. These aren't his cultures. It's kind of the kind of thing that only he could do in America. And yet, that kind of thing is now being frowned upon increasingly. Really? Yeah, on the left. There was a, there was a prominent totally chef. Touch with all that. There's a prominent chef who uh, took a picture of bibimbap, a popular Korean dish, and posted it and said, hey, this is great. She took untold amounts of grief for having done this and was accused of cultural appropriation because she wasn't Korean. Does that... No, I I mean, look, I I must confess, uh, I'm I'm kind of aware of the phenomena, but I don't pay attention to it. Maybe I should. Maybe it'd make me much more sensitive. I don't know. Might, much, might, be, might be better not to. Yeah. <laughs> might be better just be. But no, Salim, I didn't put him in there for that. I put him in there because the guy came with nothing from a war-torn country and worked hard and employs a lot of people. Yeah. And the point is that um, immigrants add to our economic vitality because, you know, there's there's kind of unlimited horizons for them. Now, whether or not he, you know, whether or not it affects his restaurant, maybe it would if it's up east or something. I don't. I think he can be fine. I mean, I would make the argument that that it's a quintessentially American story. No question. To, to me, but I think me there too. are a growing number of people on the left who would say, no, maybe this isn't right. Well, he shouldn't. That, he should grab, pick and choose. That's their problem. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of sad if that's the case. I mean, it's uh, you know, I've always said, you know, I'm for purity so long as uh, as I'm the judge, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there have been elements within the Republican Party now that have been in favor of, uh, well, as they phrased it, Anglo-Saxon traditions being put into law. I'm curious whether there is a version of the Republican Party, if they followed that strain in three years or five years, where you would say, I'm not a Republican. No, I'd say they're not going to be a party. I mean, that that is... uh, yeah, I mean, I read about that, and you know, I'm saying to myself, "Wow, these people need to read my book." And uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like saying when I was running for governor of Texas, "You'll never get any Latino votes because you're a Republican." And I said, "You watch," and I worked hard. And the key thing was to let them know that I could hear their voice. I mean, the democracy is great in that sense. It it uh, and you know, the idea of kind of saying you can only be a Republican if then. The ultimate extension of that is it ends up being a one-person party. 
But there are more of those people today than there were I hope during not. the Republican Party. I hope time. not. Well, Either that or they're louder, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. many members of Congress. I mean, they were talking about starting a caucus. That's yeah, well, you know, uh, it's uh, it, 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 yeah. it to me, that's uh, basically says that uh, we want to be extinct. We've seen other elements of that. Some of the same people we're talking about starting the, the Anglo-Saxon caucus are the people who were hyping up the idea that the election was stolen from, yeah. from Joe Biden. Yeah. More than 50% of Republicans across the country think the election was stolen. Yeah, I'm not. Do you? I'm, no. No. Uh, no I'm, I'm, I guess I'm one of the other 50%. What? And by the way, I'm still a Republican, proudly to be a Republican. I think Republicans uh, uh, will have a, a second chance to govern uh, because I believe that uh, the Biden administration is a uniting factor, and uh, particularly on the fiscal side of things. So, you know, we'll see. It's, uh, but I know this, that if the Republican Party stands for exclusivity, you know, it used to be country clubs, now evidently it's, it's uh, <laughs> white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism, then it's not going to win anything. You think Republicans have credibility to go back to, to fiscal issues? And call for limited government. I mean, but you were—it's going to the last four years happened, right? No question. Yeah. Well, if they, you know, uh, no, nah, they're going to have to, unless, of course, I'm, the economic theory that I've just poo-pooed uh, ends up being reality. It's uh, I, people I talk to who know something about it are just scratching their heads. You know, I mean, how can you print money and have explosive fiscal irresponsibility? And not expect there to be inflation. And we've taken no inflation for granted, but inflation is a punitive tax on the elderly and the poor. And it's, uh, you know, we haven't had any for a long period of time. So therefore, you know, it's, it, it could end up being a shock to people. Part of the story of immigration in this country is tied up in the story of race and the history of race in this country. In the summer of 2016, you spoke at the eulogy of the police officers in Dallas who were killed. Yeah. And you said... Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the George Floyd case and so many others from the last five years since you gave that eulogy, mm -hmm. what grade do you give the country? Uh, the Floyd verdict causes me to uh, give the grade, uh, uh, you know, a, because uh, I think the trial was fair and uh, justice was served. Uh, the question is, what grade do you give police people? And the answer to that is overall good, except police departments need to learn to uh, weed out those who don't hold our fellow citizens in, in the same regard as they hold themselves. And uh, the, there's no question there needs to be police reform. But I think one of the lessons that people will learn over time is that there's no question there needs to be police. And uh, uh, and so I'm, a, you know, I, I, I uh, again, I'm optimistic about the country's capacity to uh, take on real issues. And there is a real issue in police accountability. And, uh, but see, the, th the thing after the riots at the Capitol that should be encouraging to people, although it's hard to, it's hard to kind of see beyond that moment, is that the institution's held. And 
the question is, will the institutions of justice hold and be fair? And so far, I think that's been the case. Now, you know, we'll see these other cases are going to be adjudicated. I mean, the truth of the matter is there's been a lot of, you know, and you wonder how many, what you wonder how many uh, might have uh, uh, been exposed with the Internet. You know, how much of this might have been just common practice. And, you know, it, it feels to me that probably a lot more than we anticipate because there's a, yeah, yeah. All right, last question. Yeah. When Salim, who we spoke about earlier, yeah. who started the restaurant, came to this country, one of the first things he did is he celebrated his 14th birthday with a delicious meal at Luby's. Yeah. Now, not everyone outside of Texas will know about Luby's, but yeah. I have so many fond childhood memories. I grew up in Fort Bend County outside of Houston. Yeah, you Sugarland. Uh, I Richmond, Rosenberg. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, outside Sugarland, like keep going. Let me going. ask you this question. Did you, did, did you load up on dessert? Jello, obviously the red jello. So that was my question to you. What is your go-to? Now, for those who don't know, Luby's is kind of a meat and three cafeteria place. Yeah, that's it. So, Mr. President, what is your Luby's? You go through the line, you're you're pointing at what you want. What do you get? Well, first of all, uh, I went to Kincaid School for two years in Houston, and Buddy Luby was in my class. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness, a real celebrity. Yeah, he was, except (laughs) Luby's went bankrupt. Anyway... uh, (laughs) Uh, you know, I was a, I, I was a, a macaroni and cheese guy, uh, fried chicken, and uh, you know, Jello was a little weak when it came to the sugar I needed, and so I'd go with like uh, uh, coconut cream pie. Ooh! Oh yeah, Luby's was good. Good and, call. And that was pretty cool that Salim went to Luby's. Uh, it felt like the most quintessential Texan thing. Yeah, well, maybe the one. whole book. Yeah, I wish you could meet Salim. You'd be uh, you'd be captivated by his enthusiasm. Plus, we could do all-you-can-eat meat, which would be great for us. <laughs> which, uh, by the way, last uh, Thanksgiving, uh, he uh, he delivered to the ranch a huge amount of uh, of his beef, and Impressive. we fed the Secret Service, we fed the ranch foreman, we fed ourselves. <laughs> If he wants to do that at the dispatch headquarters, we would be happy to take it. There you go. Where is dispatch headquarters? We're in D.C. Nice. We're in downtown, a few blocks from your old house. There you go. Well, Mr. President, we so appreciate your time today. We appreciate the book, Out of Many, One, Portraits of America's Immigrants by George W. Bush. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm honored you paid attention to it.